begin with the end in mind. Access and inclusion shouldn't be an afterthought to the spaces and places and environments that we create. Prioritizing inclusive planning can ensure equitable access by everyone who can choose to use the space in different ways. Being intentional in the planning that we do is a small shift, but a very intentional one and one that I think has a really significant impact over time. The pod class is in session. I'm your host, Jamie Anderson, and today we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Leo and Katrina Maximchuk about accessible and inclusive physical activity. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to situate our conversation in the land that connects us to one another. We are guests on and speaking from the territories of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, Nakota Sioux, Blackfoot Confederacy, including Gaina, Pagani, and Siksiga, Sutina, the Ayahi Nakota Nations, including Chiniki, Bearspaw, Wesley, and of course the Metis Nation of Alberta. These territories are defined now by Treaty 6 and 7 and the Metis regions, but the actual ancestral territories of the First Peoples stretch far beyond those colonial boundaries. We come to our conversation today with gratitude for all of those folks who've gone before us and who've been caretakers of the land that continues to sustain us. But I also think it's important to situate our conversation in our historical present. Nicole Anise Nash writes that disability is a colonial construct that conflicts with Indigenous perspectives of community membership and perpetuates assimilation practices which maintain colonial harm. We don't have to look far into our history books to see examples of structural violence against Indigenous peoples, folks with disabilities, and those whose identities intersect. In fact, issues like coerced sterilization, for one, remain very real and present concerns in Canada today. The organization Tangled Art and Disability reminds us, disability justice must be rooted in the dismantling of white supremacy, anti-Blackness, and colonialism. Any less cannot be considered true justice. So we come to this conversation today recognizing the ways that decolonization and disability justice are intertwined, uh, and we come to this conversation with a commitment to both of these. Thank you so much for being here, Jen and Katrina, and welcome to the pod class. We like to start our podcast by reminding our listeners to engage in an activity for their well-being while they listen. As you introduce yourself for our audience, uh, I'm wondering if you can also share with folks one of your go-to habits to support your well-being. Sure. Thanks so much for the opportunity to speak with everyone today. Uh, my name is Jen Leo, and I'm the director of the Steadward Center over at the University of Alberta. In terms of uh, physical activity behavior, I guess I really try to be active every day if I can. I live near the Mill Creek Ravine and absolutely love walking and biking, especially with my kids if we can rope them into it. And then in the winter, outdoor skating in the winter. You know, we really find that it helps to manage stress. And if everybody's active during the day, I think everybody sleeps a lot better. So just trying to integrate physical activity every day as, as much as possible. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jamie. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. So my name is Katrina Maximchuk, and I'm the executive director of the Paralympic Sports Association. Um, like Jen, I need to get outside. Try to every day. Um, it's a little bit tricky with my two kiddos. We're not quite at the bike ride stage just yet, but we do spend a lot of time in the parks. We like to park hop if possible and, and check out some of the cool ones in the city. Um, I also love a good dance party. So it's not outdoors, but wherever I can crank the tunes and, and just jump around and let out some of that stress, sometimes you just have to dance it out. I love that. What a great reminder. And uh, I appreciate that both of you like to get outside. Uh, so you both bring a wealth of experience to our conversation today on accessible and inclusive physical activity. Can you tell us a bit more about what led you to become involved in inclusive physical activity and recreation spaces and the type of work your organizations do to support accessibility and inclusion? Maybe Katrina, we can start with you with that question. Sure thing. So my my little sister, uh, she's not so little anymore. She's 25 this year, uh, but she was born with uh, disabilities. So growing up, sport and recreation opportunities for us to engage in as a family were really hard to find. This was sort of the 
the mid to late 90s. Many spaces were physically inaccessible and a lot of attitudinal barriers meant that we didn't always feel welcome when we did go out. Nevertheless, my mom was really motivated to make sure that we sort of experienced a typical pace of life as a family. So we went everywhere and we did everything uh, to her credit. Absolutely. So when I started at the U of A um, after high school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to pursue. I started off in sciences, felt that that necessarily wasn't for me. Um, And then I found this Denver Center and started volunteering um, at the Free to Be Me program. And that was it. That was my passion. I switched to the faculty of kinesiology, sport and recreation, and sort of the rest is history. So um, after my undergrad, I pursued a master's at the U of A doing research on the social relationships and motivation for children with disabilities in specialized sports. And then after grad school, I spent a year as an accessibility advisor on campus. And then I began my position as an adaptive physical education specialist um, with Edmonton Catholic Schools and early learning exclusively. So I got to work with with the littles, the three, four or five year olds. And then just this past August, I began working with Paralympic Sports Association as their executive director. So PSA, we're a nonprofit inclusive organization uh, dedicated to enhancing the well-being of individuals with disabilities and their support networks through adaptive recreational and sporting activities. PSA offers a variety of programming moved by everything from a junior sledge hockey team to paracycling. And we are absolutely welcome to anyone who wants to participate and join us. Thanks, Katrina. Uh, I have to say I've played sledge hockey before and really loved the sport. Not very great at it, but had so much fun nonetheless. So that's very exciting to hear the work that you do. Jen, uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure. So when I was reflecting on the, you know, that question about what led me to get involved in this field, I don't want to take you back too far, but I did start as a sports and games programmer when I was an an undergraduate student many years ago with Blue Mountain Easter Seal Camp. And it was one of those, you know, summer job opportunities that kind of changed my program of study. Easter Seal Camps are focused on kids with disabilities and I had a chance to get to know many of the kids that summer and found out that many of them didn't actually take part in their phys ed classes when they went back to their home communities. And that really resonated with me and kind of stuck with me as I was thinking about what to do when I finished my undergrad degree. So it led me to pursue a master's degree, which I ended up doing here at the University of Alberta, focused on understanding experiences of inclusion in physical education for kids with disabilities. And then sort of through a variety of experiences, you know, I I did my grad school at the University of Alberta and ended up doing my PhD there as well. I spent a few years as a research assistant at the Stedward Center. Then I moved to Ontario to work with an inclusive community recreation center called the Ability Center, and then came back to the Stedward Center in 2018. It's an organization focused on facilitating adapted physical activity and parasport programming for everyone. So this means that we provide sport, physical activity, and recreation programs for adults, youth, and kids experiencing disability. And the opportunity to get, you know, adults, kids, and youth interested in activity and engaging together in a space where they feel comfortable and then supporting them as they move into the community and, you know, connect with organizations like the Paralympic Sports Association is really, um, it's it's pretty cool to be able to, to lead an organization like that. Another thing that's part of our work at the Stedward Center is because we're a part of the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation, is we also get to spend a lot of time working with practitioners or future professionals. And that's a really neat piece because we get to work with pre-service teachers, educators, kin students, you know, people going into rehab med, and we get to teach about disability and activity settings, which may influence the way people then end up being as practitioners when it comes to, you know, delivering phys ed or, or whatever those kind of services might be. So uh, that's been a really powerful piece and something I think the Stedward Center really prides itself on. And then as well through the Stedward Center, I've had an opportunity to work with the KSR faculty to develop an adapted physical activity graduate certificate. And I had to give it a plug here because it's a really unique opportunity for folks who already have a degree who are looking to get kind of a, you know, a two-year graduate degree in a specialty area. And so we do have one that's starting in the fall that's focused on APA. And so it might be of interest to folks who are currently in education, looking to increase their skill set when it comes to adapted physical activity. So just putting in a little plug for that opportunity as well. 
Thanks for that plug. I think as someone who's taken graduate certificate programming before, I, I highly recommend the support it offers for practitioners as well. And I think uh, stemming from both of your introductions and descriptions of how you became involved in inclusive uh, physical activity in your journeys, what is very clear to me and hopefully very clear to our listeners is that there remain significant barriers for participation for kids with disabilities and youth with disabilities and adults, like you said as well, Jen, for participation in recreation and in sport, which is shocking, but also just speaks to the pervasive and ongoing kind of barriers, structural barriers, uh, but attitudinal barriers as well that you mentioned, Katrina, that exist. And there's no question the positive impacts of physical activity in its very different forms. So what I'm starting to piece together is that not only are folks not accessing physical activity because of these barriers, but also don't get to experience the positive benefits. So you folks are doing this this work of inclusive physical activity and recreation. Can you share with us what we mean by inclusive physical activity and why is it important in schools? I'm happy to kind of start here. So I think you know, based on lots of research, but also on experience working in the community, inclusion is really about feeling like you belong and that you can participate in a way that is meaningful for you. So that can look like lots of different things, but it's really important that individuals have the opportunity to figure out what that looks like. We want to embrace different ways of moving and acknowledge that some bodies move differently. And then I think, you know, that's a really key piece is that we get all kids to be able to participate and develop active habits. And that's where I think it's so important within schools, because if you introduce and kind of acknowledge the fact that it's key for everyone from such a young age, hopefully then kids develop those habits that stick with them through kind of their youth, their young adult times and, and all the way into adulthood. Yeah, what really sticks out what you just said there is feeling like you belong. And sometimes as teachers, we forget that uh, how students feel should be driving our practice as teachers, right? And inclusion is not just the decisions we make to have everybody in the same room, but rather inclusion is that feeling that we can foster and support in students. Katrina, what are your thoughts on what do we mean by inclusive physical activity and why it's important in schools? Yeah, Jen and I definitely share really similar philosophies and foundational pieces to our beliefs around inclusion. And I have to echo her sentiments that inclusion for me is a, is a sense of belonging, is feeling like you're meant to be here and you're happy to be there and, and the people in that space are happy to have you. In my practice, I've noticed that kids, especially from a really young age, are very aware that they might move differently or maybe struggle with a certain physical task. So it's our obligation really to create environments that are motivating, that promote feelings of confidence and competence, give the opportunity to practice, to play and explore, just with the, the ultimate goal of encouraging students that are really passionate about moving and want to be physically active throughout their lifespan. Thanks for sharing that. I think... Uh... And, you know, what you've shared reminds me of being a junior high teacher, even even when I taught grade five and having students recognize uh, or maybe even already be defeated because they recognize that they move differently or struggled with um, maybe fine motor tasks or gross motor tasks. And I think that's so uh, disheartening that, you know, our schools are supposed to be places where there's joy in learning. And by, you know, grade five, even junior high, we have contributed to this environment where students uh, feel like they don't belong or they can't uh, or they don't want to. And the work that you folks do is really important. And I'm so glad to learn from you. I'm wondering if next we can just chat about like, how can we think about access and inclusion in education spaces differently? Because I think how we're thinking about it now clearly is not working to support all of our students. And as educators in the profession, it's so important for us to be critically self-reflective and reflexive and always be looking to improve our practices. So I'm wondering if you can share with us, how can we be thinking about it differently in education spaces? Uh, you know, I think it really is important that it is made to be a priority. Like it might feel overwhelming for teachers because I fully appreciate that they have so many things to consider and plan for, and they work really hard. But if it's just this sort of subtle shift in, in thinking that every activity you do, every activity space that you're using, you need to consider access and inclusion. So absolutely the gymnasium space, maybe it's the availability of equipment. If you have a chance to put in and ask for new pieces of equipment, how can you think about focusing on access and inclusion and, and you know, bringing in that variety of equipment? And then on the playground, 
And I think recess is maybe an under-focused aspect when it comes to inclusion, but there's incredible opportunities for kids to connect through active play at recess and prioritizing ways that kids experiencing disability can be active with their peers in those spaces is really important. At the Stedward Center, we've been doing some work in collaboration with Canadian Tire Jumpstart on promoting inclusive play in Alberta. And so we've been doing some work around learning more about what inclusive playgrounds offer for kids and, and what that could look like and how we can kind of support programming that can take place on playgrounds that are designed for inclusion, but also other ones maybe that still are not quite there yet. So it's definitely a priority. And I think it's great for communities, but it's also really great for the schools when they can really prioritize the need to focus on access and inclusion. And then hopefully that gets more kids connecting in the same space. Thanks, Jen. Now now that you mentioned and introduced the Playground Project, I think uh, I live here in Calgary and I, I heard that there are 10 new accessible playgrounds being built in Calgary. And that's a fantastic start. But for such a massive city, you know, thinking about uh, inclusive playgrounds first, clearly we have a long ways to go, even though that work continues to be done in and around the city. Yeah, we need to prioritize the planning piece. I think the teacher adage goes, begin with the end in mind. Access and inclusion shouldn't be an afterthought to the spaces and places and environments that we create. Prioritizing inclusive planning can ensure equitable access um, by everyone who can choose to use the space in different ways. I love the piece about outdoor play. I'm hugely passionate. I think that's a piece that is often overlooked that I had been asked to address previously in, in my other role as an adaptive phys ed specialist, just figuring out ways, particularly with our tricky climate at times, that kids who experience disability can get out with their friends and enjoy some of that freely chosen active time that they have. So being intentional in the planning that we do and not being reactive to really prioritize the things that we value and believe are important for everybody to have access to, I think is is a small shift, but a very intentional one and one that I think has a really significant impact over time. Thanks, Katrina. I think folks should write this down, what you said, that access and inclusion shouldn't be an afterthought. As teachers going through pre-service education, sometimes we have expectations about what our classroom should look like uh, or what our classroom will look like. And I think prioritizing that inclusive lens is super key and should come first, not secondary or not if you have time. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, I, I'm in a PhD program right now, so a lot of my day-to-day -day work is doing research, reading journal articles, and I, I came across something that I thought was really powerful and could maybe add to our conversation. So Thomas and Hirsch write that structural ableism assumes that there is an ideal body in mind that is better than all others, and ableists build a world in which this ideal can thrive and others cannot. The disability and mental, behavioral, and emotional health rights movements have fought to demonstrate that the opposite is true, that all bodies have value, that all people should be treated with dignity and respect, and that we can build a world that is beneficial to us all. I'm wondering, and, and you've both kind of alluded to this already, but in what ways can physical activity programming perpetuate this structural ableism? I think historically speaking, physical education contexts uh, our spaces have been very ableist in what they've stood for, what has been achieved or desired to be achieved in those spaces, how they've been structured. All of this has been very ableist. Physical education can be a space, as I mentioned, where many comparisons are derived just by how we structure the environment and the nature of the activities that we choose to engage in in those spaces. And kids are so quick to pick up these differences. I mean, you mentioned junior high kids, grade five kids. I've seen kids as young as you know kindergarten age just choosing not to participate in an activity because they know that they're not going to be successful in the same way that their peers are which is incredibly disheartening a kid who's seven shouldn't feel bad about what they can or can't do or how they do things and so there's a definite shift that needs to occur simple changes in how we structure these activities I think is really the key so we can decrease those occasions where those differences are really pointed out and maybe made to feel as less than. Uh, we need to place the emphasis on effort versus outcome. Again, I, I'm really from an early education lens, having spent so much time there, but I do strongly feel a shift occurring 
one that's towards a much more holistic approach in physical education. I think the introduction of the concept of physical literacy and increase in popularity and just knowledge of what it means to be physically literate and how we can encourage physical literacy in our students is is a monumental change and I think it's going to lend itself really well to lifelong physical activity of individuals experiencing disability. I really like what Katrina had to say there and I absolutely agree with the you know the introduction of uh, physical literacy as a concept and how well that can work in terms of thinking about movement a little differently. I think so often with teachers, you know, they really are focused on assessment because that's what they're trained to do. And they they think about, okay, well, I need to be able to evaluate movement for my students to make sure people are doing things right. And as I say, right, I've got, you know, my fingers in, in air quotes here, but I think ableism is helpful because it gives us this, this language to name that what we're doing is suggesting that there's one right way of moving and being, and that there's this one ideal body that everybody should be striving for. But we all know that if we look in a classroom of kids, whether or not kids have a disability label, people are going to move differently, whether their bodies are just different sizes or, you know, those middle school kids who are at different stages of puberty or not. And so, you know, if we kind of just rethink about the words and the language that we use to describe movement and then also assessment, I think it gives a little bit more openness and flexibility to, to embracing and acknowledging that there are different ways of moving. So, you know, rather than focusing always within an activity of throwing a ball in one specific way, maybe a teacher can just shift their language and say, you know, we're going to focus on sending this object across the room, or you need to move from one side to another, rather than saying you need to run with what we call like this perfect movement form. So really rethinking the language that we're using can shift away from, you know, saying that there's this one ideal way of being, which can be really hard because educators are, are taught that there is this right way and that gives you something to evaluate. So I appreciate that it, it can be hard within everybody's heads to kind of think about what this all looks like and to, to shift the way that you're thinking a little bit, but it's really important. And then the other piece I just wanted to kind of highlight was this idea of thinking about what are the stories that we're telling in the classroom that give value to certain experiences and bodies? So in terms of, you know, representation of images on the wall or even, you know, fictional stories that are being told or, or whose voices are being shared when you're, you know, providing a quote or different language that's being used. So are there ways that you can bring more stories of lived experience of disability into the curriculum so that it starts to sort of suggest to students that there's lots of different ways of living and being in our world? There's a really great article that I read just this past weekend about ways to infuse it in like the K-12 curriculum. So I think there's lots of opportunities for teachers to do that. It just takes that moment of pausing and saying, this is important to me and this is how I'm going to then address it moving forward. Amazing. That's that's a fantastic reminder. And I think something that you said also uh, was a great reminder too, that even a lot of our students with disabilities, those aren't visible. So sometimes we enter a classroom space and we assume that all of our students are a certain way, but we can, you know, accidentally alienate those students by reinforcing that ideal, as you were mentioning. I think that is also a reminder that recognizing students with disabilities and and including those experiences into the learning environment is not just for physical education where the body is kind of the center or the locus of the learning. I think it's super powerful to, like you say, Jen, weave those stories and experiences into all aspects of learning. I think even like bridging connections across curriculum, you know, in science class talking about, you know, historical issues concerning folks with disabilities. There there are lots of connections that can be made for sure. And the more we engage in having those conversations and representing diverse ways of being, the more we can support our students in, in feeling safe and that sense of belonging. I just wanted to say thank you for addressing the piece about assessment. I think one of the key issues that teachers face, especially in that physical education environment, even in health education, is, again, the body being like this focus point for assessment and for educators to reorient ourselves away from that the body and specifically those confined bodily movements as the source of assessment. I think tons of opportunities can open up for creative assessment that supports student learning and builds that intrinsic motivation for activity. Speaking to that, and you've, you've kind of touched on this, 
But what other roles can educators and teachers play in addressing any of these structural barriers, you know, such as access to physical spaces, policies, equipments, resources, attitudes? Jen, can you maybe speak to beyond those teaching practices, what educators can do to address these barriers? Sure. I think, you know, I've talked a lot about educators prioritizing this idea. And I think one of the things that people can do is start to, you know, find some of the great PD resources that are out there, you know, take a disability affirming approach, try to integrate more lived experience type resources, I guess, into what you're consuming. So for example, I've this past year tried to make it a priority for myself to read authors that have different lived experiences from myself. So I've been reading more Black authors. I've been reading more books by disabled writers, really trying to prioritize that as a way that, you know, as you're consuming these different things, it helps you to think differently, maybe about some of these different lived experiences. So, you know, read books, watch movies, listen to podcasts that are done by people experiencing disability. But the one caveat that I just want to put in there is that we want to make sure that the representation or the the things that we're consuming are authentic, that it's not about trying to be inspirational. And there's a fine line there. And we don't need to get into like a whole discussion about, you know, the idea of of inspiration porn and, and people with disabilities being placed on this pedestal for doing everyday tasks. So I think there's kind of this fine line of trying to think about what that looks like. So really trying to authentically take in resources and consume things that are are written by people experiencing disability is a really great starting point. And then being an advocate for accessibility and inclusion as you're entering into discussions with committees, policy makers, that sort of thing. For example, if your school has an opportunity to design a new playground, put up your hand and say, we need to make sure that we consult with the disability community as we're going ahead in the design stage. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jen. I appreciate that. And, uh, I wasn't sure if we'd be allowed to say inspiration porn, but but I think that's such a that's such a huge piece. Is sometimes we overcompensate with uh, a very inauthentic kind of approach to our recognition of folks with disabilities that, like you say, puts folks on a pedestal and doesn't recognize that there's beauty in the complexity and in that authenticity. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. I've been really fortunate to work with some wonderful educators in my previous roles. Educators really want to do the best for their students, but I've often noticed that sometimes they just don't know where to start or quite often people are just a little bit overwhelmed about maybe what they read on paper, diagnoses wise, or, or things that we need to take into consideration. I, I guess the, the most important thing is just to start to recognize that there's going to be barriers and challenges, but um, to take those on and, and be persistent in Edmonton. So a little, not that far away from Calgary, but we get winter maybe a lot longer and a lot colder than you guys do. I'd say like six out of 10 school months, they're above. Cold and snow can often be perceived as a barrier to outdoor play and recreation. Um, so I think it's the the attitude piece that really needs to come into play when, when we're faced with these challenges. Model it, gear up, go outside, participate alongside your students. The next piece would be that equipment as well. Um, I think having the right equipment on hand to enjoy the snow um, is really important. Things like having toboggans or kick sleds, or even just being that person who advocates at the school for a well-shoveled tarmac just to allow access to the outdoors is really important in feeling like you have a space to belong and and one that's not so barrier-ridden, I guess. The snow is really challenging for a lot of the little ones that I used to work with. PSA will offer in-school adaptive sport opportunities. Uh, so we have a program called Sledges in Schools that is often historically funded and I hope to still be funded by uh, Canadian Tire Jumpstart. So we go out to schools and offer sledge hockey experiences for students of all ages. So we've had little ones um, all the way from about grade one, two, all the way up to high school students, just a chance to see sport from a different perspective, quite literally. And then we also have the opportunity for schools or classes to borrow our equipment. Um, so if there is a a hockey unit that everybody's participating in or some skating lessons that everybody can be included, yeah, we can get those sledges out to you within a couple of days time and you can have them for the duration of your lesson. It's just ensuring everybody has access to the spaces and can move in the way that is best suited to them. 
Thank you for sharing that. And folks who are listening, I know equipment is a significant barrier in schools, I think, period, you know, having having funds to access equipment or uh, supports for students. But I really appreciate your lens on, you know, investing in equipment for folks to engage in outdoor play, especially during winter, the amount of funds that go to sit spaces in a classroom, it would be great if we, you know, invested that same amount in movement accessibility and and play uh, to support that in, in outdoor spaces. I appreciate all of the expertise you've shared so far and suggestions for educators. I'm wondering if you have any particular stories that you'd like to share that illustrate something you've learned about accessibility and creating accessible movement spaces from youth with disabilities that you've worked with. So a number of years ago, I had a chance to to volunteer with the Active Living Alliance for Canadians with a Disability. They have this amazing youth exchange program that essentially brought together youth from across the country to take part in new physical activities. They got to meet other kids experiencing disability. For some that came from remote communities, it was the first time that they had met someone else with a disability. It was just this amazing program. And then there was also a piece that tried to develop some advocacy skills in the youth so that when they went back to their home communities, they felt a little bit more confident to go to their municipalities to say, I want to be active. This is what I need to be active. Help me to make this happen. And the youth were amazing. And it was really neat to see the shift in just this week together about their, you know, their confidence improved and they felt like they could do it. But one thing that always stuck with me after that was that we were placing so much of the responsibility on the youth to be advocates for themselves. And on one hand, absolutely, we want people to advocate for themselves. They need to speak up for what they need, know what they need, be able to articulate those needs. And we want them to be leaders in the community. But I really think that it's important to continue to highlight that the responsibility is on all of us, that communities should be thinking about who's missing, how can we make sure that um, youth experiencing disability feel welcome to share those ideas and to be a part of the planning. So I think youth want to do that. They have a voice and they know what they want, but just finding that balance between making sure that their voices are included in our planning will be so, so important because clearly they have a lot to say. And uh, yeah, we just need to be willing to listen. Just to echo Jen's sentiment, um, I think perhaps working in the field of adaptive physical activity or even just with individuals who experience disability, um, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of approach a situation from an expert perspective to address a particular challenge or maybe perceive yourself as being somebody who has a certain set of knowledge and experience. I think that is a cautionary tale. I think approaching a situation as somebody who wants to listen and understand and really placing value on the lived experiences of individuals and amplifying that voice, that's a big piece of the work that we're doing and and moving towards. So always, you know, my goal is to to empower you to share their perspective, experience, and knowledge. Both of you highlight the importance of listening. And I have to say, teachers, we're not always the best listeners, right? There are a lot of factors that motivate that tendency to swoop in as an expert or tell folks to advocate for themselves and and then we'll respond. But I think uh, both of you have highlighted just that importance of listening and and also, you know, unlearning the idea that the teacher is expert because there's so much knowledge in the room outside of ourselves, regardless of if you're teaching little kindies all the way up to grade 12. So I think that's a that's a really important reminder. On this thought of teaching and shifting our teaching practices, I'm going to go back to that classroom space. And I want to talk a little bit about Universal Design for Learning or UDL, which is Uh, Probably another overused acronym in teaching, but nevertheless, really important framework for teaching and learning that recognizes that when we make learning accessible for some of our learners, it actually benefits all of our learners. Uh, And it's based on the principles of universal design, which notably addresses physical spaces like, you know, the curb cuts on the sidewalks and ramp entrances. CAST states that universal design for learning aims to change the design of the environment rather than to change the learner. Ultimately, it's about making accessibility the standard. So for educators, this means more than just changing the physical classroom space. And you've both uh, addressed this already, but instead, you know, we have to shift how we plan, how we facilitate learning, how we assess learning, uh, and how we engage with our students. 
from your experiences, your wealth of experiences, can you share any stories about barrier-free physical activity strategies that were designed for participants with disabilities uh, and also ended up benefiting participants without disabilities as well? So I think a well-designed activity can be accessible to anyone of all abilities. And perhaps as opposed to adapting an activity for a specific individual, just choosing an activity that can be accessed from everyone is, is a different way to kind of flip a perceived problem on its head and just helps helps kind of get the ideas going and, and helps you overcome that, oh, geez, what if I'm doing the wrong thing kind of moment that we all have. So instead of, uh, of a specific story, I'm going to share my favorite activity, and I hope that's okay. Um, I learned this actually from a, a sub that was in one day to a classroom that I was visiting, and it's my go-to ever since. So it's a game called Builders and Dozers, or sometimes Builders and Destroyers. So what you do in prep for the activity, you scatter pylons throughout the gymnasium. So all the tall pylons are great, the small ones, even the plastic discs will work, but the pylons are kind of nice because you can tell if they're standing upright or if they're knocked over. Um, so your participants are divided into two teams. The one team is the builders. They stand the pylons upright. They are building the city. And the other team you have, they're the dozers. They have to knock the pylons over. So basically it's a free-for-all. Everybody is moving throughout the gym space. It's loud. You've got kids knocking over pylons. My rule is that you needed to use your hands only. You could not kick the pylon. And other kids coming along and trying to stand them up, but then you get kids knocking them down or protecting a certain area if there's a lot of pylons. It's a fantastic game. First of all, because it's really active. Quite often the time that we have in gymnasium spaces is very short. I don't want to spend a lot of time setting activities up, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time putting all of the equipment away at the end of it all. So as soon as we're in, I want everybody moving as quick as possible. The instructions are quick. The activity can be visually demonstrated, as can the demarcation of teams with pennies. Secondly, you can layer in different types of locomotion. So again, from an early ed perspective, development of fundamental movement skills was something that I highlighted a lot. So you can get your kids to run from pylon. They can do skipping or hopping or ninja tiptoeing. They have to be super sneaky. Everybody's moving at their own pace. We're not competing against anyone. There's no... No, oh, so-and-so crossed the finish line first and I'm way lagging behind. If you want to give it all you got and move and hustle, you're absolutely able to do that. If you want to take it easy and just pursue the activity at a leisurely pace, you can do that too. I can always usually get everyone involved. Kiddos that are having bad days, that are grouchy, who doesn't love to knock something over and have it be okay? Um, and then the ones that don't love to move, there is something also inherently motivating about being able to knock something over that'll that'll get you going. And at the end of the activity, I always throw in a kids versus adults round because that is also a lot of fun. But my one pro tip would be to uh, do yourself a favor, make sure there's a lot of grown-ups supporting your activity, your classroom space that day, because those kiddos, let me tell you, if it's a, a kids versus teachers experience, they will give it all they got. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Awesome. I love I'm I'm imagining what that gymnasium looks like. And it sounds fun. I know I would definitely be participating as a teacher. So uh, I really appreciate that activity. And I also appreciate what, what you said, just, you know, selecting activities that can be accessible for everyone rather than always thinking about how to adapt to physical activities. I think that's such a great piece of advice. Jen, uh, are you able to jump in and share some of your experiences or ideas based on you know, strategies that worked for, for all students? Sure. So one quick story that I wanted to share was actually happened with uh, my daughter. She was at a classmate's party, birthday party a couple of years ago, and it took place outdoors at a playground. And one of her classmates uses a walker and, you know, the kids were just being kids. They wanted to climb up on one of the structures just to hang out and chat. And the surface of the playground was covered in wood chips, which actually by many accessibility standards, wood chips are actually considered an accessible surface. But if you're someone who uses a walker, this classmate was not able to navigate the surface. And so she couldn't join the classmates. And it just created this moment where, you know, the kids are at a birthday party and they're just hanging out. And there's that one classmate who's kind of off to the side because they're not able to navigate the physical environment. 
if the playground had been designed according to, you know, universal design standards and had that poured rubberized surface, it wouldn't have been an issue. And it would have created and opened up those opportunities to enhance the social experiences that are so important in our physical activity spaces. So I really think that universal design is such a wonderful approach in how we design and build our spaces because it's really thinking about kind of all the possibilities. How can we reduce as many barriers for as many people as possible? So that's kind of just a quick thing in terms of the physical structure and thinking about those decisions that we make about designing things like playgrounds and how important that that is in the long run. Just a couple of really quick sort of strategies, thinking about the consistent program structure. You know, if you layer your your phys ed class in the same way each day, kids know what to expect when they come into that space. And that can be a really comforting thing for kids. So maybe it's the same warm up every day. It creates consistency. Kids like it. You know, we have a resource that we put together at the Stedward Center called Get Active Together. And I'm happy to share the link afterwards if folks want to be able to access it. It was designed with teachers in mind. And, you know, it has a warm up that uses language that encourages a range of movements and you can use it over and over. When I was looking through the Get Active Together resource, I was really struck by how much easier it is to do this with younger kids. I think they're much more open to using visuals as teaching tools and and having kids wear pennies to highlight who's it or setting up, you know, cones or things to to really make clear boundaries and then to use like movement education strategies, I think work really well with younger kids. It absolutely gets more challenging when kids are older. And so I think that's where, again, you know, the teacher can set the tone and highlight that everyone matters in that space rather than getting kids to pick partners or teams the teacher can decide who's going to be partners. Or there's all kinds of super fun strategies that you can use to get partners chosen randomly. Yeah, so those are just a couple of things that that maybe can work, thinking about designing that space for for as many learners as possible to be as active as possible. And I also absolutely support Katrina's recommendations for Builders and Dozers. It's one of the funnest games. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that resource. We will post that resource in our podcast notes so that you can access it. I think, you know, those strategies are are so key. And I will just say as an adult, I have found it, you know, empowering the language of encouraging range of movements. One example that I have is, you know, doing yoga. I'm not a super flexible person and I don't consider myself someone who is, you know, confident in that yoga space, but I've been lucky to be in classes where, you know, instructors have encouraged that range of movement, you know, move your body in ways that feel good for you. Like that kind of messaging can be so empowering. And it, it also promotes that embodied uh, intuition for young people to kind of be in their body and understand what feels good for them, which in the long run can promote that confidence and motivation for activity throughout the lifespan. Language, I think, is so important in physical activity spaces, uh, not to get off topic, but I think, you know, this is interconnected. Some of the research that I've done in, in my graduate studies involves, you know, LGBTQ and two-spirit students in the phys ed space. And I think shifting language to be accessible for all students through the lens of disability accessibility uh, supports, you know, all students who don't always feel comfortable and confident in those movement spaces or uh, with, you know, the instructional strategies that are so traditional to the physical education space. Because our audience is primarily, you know, in-service and pre-service teachers, I'm wondering if you can kind of distill, you've obviously shared so much experience and knowledge with us today that we can turn into practice come Monday or after the weekend, what, what have you. But is there something that you wish all teachers knew about inclusive and accessible physical activity and recreation? Maybe something you haven't mentioned or, or if you want to reiterate something that you've mentioned? You know, I've said a couple of times today that it's I want teachers to make it a priority and to feel responsibility. And I don't want people to feel overwhelmed. Like I really want to reiterate that it doesn't have to be hard. I absolutely have confidence that all teachers can do this. It's just about making it a priority. Talk to your students about experiencing disability, consume more disability stories. The more that you start to check out great resources, you'll really start to build up kind of your own personal toolkit of things that work for you and language that you feel comfortable with. So I think you know, that's really it. it. It doesn't have to be hard or complicated. You just have to kind of own it and say, okay, this is important to me. It's something that I'm going to start to do. 
think it was Yoda that said something about like there there is no try, there's only do. And I I don't want to derail the impact of your comment with a Star Wars reference, but that advice is so important. You know, do just there are so many starting points and entry points that you've provided for folks, and I I think that resonates. Doesn't have to be complicated. Just do it. Uh, Katrina, your thoughts? What do you wish all teachers knew? Same with Jen. <laughs> Don't overthink it. Really, just plan, facilitate, and adapt as you go. An activity doesn't need to be a huge success on the first try. Uh, that's that's my big piece of advice. Give yourself some grace to do some trial and error, to reevaluate, to come back to things. Nothing is ever perfect the first time. So enjoy the journey. Have fun. Uh, your students are going to look to you for a lot of their motivation your enthusiasm and energy and willingness to participate, to have fun, to maybe even look silly doing something is going to motivate them to get going for sure. Brilliant. Now, both of you offered really great strategies. And I think there are some of our listeners who probably need a bit more of a nudge because there is that hesitance and, you know, fear of failure, like you mentioned, Katrina and Jen, you know, hesitance to talk to our students who experience disability how might you begin a conversation with a teacher, instructor, or leader who who experiences, you know, the self-consciousness or lack of confidence in their perceived abilities? How might you nudge them to get to the space of actually just doing it and being gracious with themselves throughout that process? There are so many resources out there now. I often found myself just in a rut of thinking that I need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> and that's not the case at all. Join some Facebook groups. I've found a lot of great communities online and people that are so generous with their ideas and their resources. Um, Follow adaptive phys ed teachers on Twitter. Some make great YouTube videos that explain activities because I'm a a visual learner. Reading, Reading how to play a game doesn't really translate super well for me. So yeah, head on to YouTube. Websites like Active for Life and uh, resources like Ophia are phenomenal places to start, especially if you're you're in a bit of a rut or just kind of overthinking things and, and need a little bit of a push to get over that. Creating inclusive spaces doesn't need to mean that everybody's going to be as equally skillful at a task. I think that might be a trap that quite often we find ourselves falling into that if you're doing a good job of adapting and modifying that everybody is going to look the same and be equally as successful. What inclusion should mean and what we're gearing towards is that everybody has the opportunity in that environment to engage at a level appropriate to their ability to be challenged, to maybe even experience failure and to enjoy their time in that space. I always said, I don't need a phys ed class full of Tom Brady's. I don't need elite level athletes, but what I do need is to create an environment where everybody is active, having fun, and feeling like they belong. Thanks, Katrina. That's a that's a great sentiment. Uh, Jen, what are your thoughts? Um, I would really echo a lot of Katrina's comments, and even you know her response to the last question about it's okay to make mistakes. I think that's absolutely fine. Things aren't necessarily going to go well the first time, but you have to kind of jump in there and to realize that not everyone knows everything, and and other people feel a little self conscious too. Another thing I was just thinking about too is this idea that kids experiencing disability have the right to be included in play activities, in our physical activity experiences. If teachers feel uncomfortable with it, you know, in some ways they need to sort of just get over it. Because if you felt uncomfortable about including a child experiencing disability when it came to math or reading or science, you would figure out a way to make it happen because those are important critical skills. So I think if we prioritize participation in sport, physical activity and recreation in the same way, everybody would realize that we just have to do it and realize, you know, there's probably lots of teachers that feel uncomfortable with their own bodies and how they move in physical education spaces and just to realize that that's okay too. And so maybe it's working together with the students to find ways that everybody feels comfortable. So it's kind of a a sensitive issue, I think, in some ways, because you know, when you are physically active, you are putting yourself into that that gaze of others because people can see how your body moves and what it looks like. And that is quite different from lots of other experiences in school. So I think it's creating that safe space for teachers and students to be active together in a way that hopefully creates positive experiences for, for everyone. 
I really appreciate, Jen, that bit of tough love, because I think we get caught in these thinking traps and we make it about our performance as teachers. But you remind us that like, we need to center the experience of our students in terms of that feeling of belonging. Our, our students experience disabilities. All of our students have the right to that belonging. And we have to shift our focus from ourselves. And like you say, like there are lots of reasons to feel self-conscious in that gaze. But like it's not about us. It's about those students. And we have to, you know, ensure we're not getting in the way of the best possible experiences for those students, which means embrace the messiness. It's not going to be perfect, but those relationships will benefit from that. I feel like perhaps we may be repeating ourselves a little bit, but I think ultimately, like the goal of this podcast is really to translate theory into practice. So I'm wondering, you know, one thing teachers could start doing tomorrow to help them create meaningful, inclusive movement experiences that are inviting, empowering, and of value to all individuals. Jen, what's one thing we can support teachers with starting tomorrow? You know, I think just for teachers to start to feel more comfortable, I'm going to recommend that they listen to a podcast by a disability studies scholar. Hear more stories of lived experience of disability. There's many great ones out there. Um, I'm happy to recommend a few links that can be shared with the listeners. I think it's just such an maybe a way for teachers to start to immerse themselves into thinking about disability to get themselves kind of ready and thinking about activity a little bit differently from the perspective of those who have lived experience of disability. I love that. And please feel free to share those links and we'd be happy to share them in the pod class notes. Katrina, what's one thing teachers could do tomorrow? I think just to take pause and really refocus yourself as somebody who is approaching challenges from a strengths-based approach, especially over the course of this year and everything that educators have had to contend with. With the pandemic, it's easy to kind of get bogged down in the muck and mire and all the things that we can't do or are having a hard time doing just to identify the positives and things that you can do. A different mindset when approaching a task will make your solutions a little bit more creative and make the process that much more enjoyable just to recognize that we've all got gifts and talents and to celebrate them. Thank you both for those fantastic suggestions. And like I mentioned, you know, you've you've shared so many practical strategies that teachers can put into practice and there's no shortage of entry points. So just a reminder to our listeners, it's, a, it's about just doing it, getting in there and starting to prioritize universal design in your classroom and starting to prioritize inclusive, accessible physical activity for all of your students. Uh, I wish we had more time together and hopefully our paths cross again because I'm sure we have a lot more learning to do and and a lot more to this conversation. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end. So thank you once more, Dr. Jennifer Leo and Katrina Maximchuk for sharing your expertise with the podcast listeners. And thanks, listeners, for joining us for another episode of The Pod Class, a podcast from Everactive Schools that inspires educators with ideas for a happy, healthy classroom. Special thanks to Matthew Wood for composing and performing the theme music. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at EverActiveAB, on Facebook at Everactive Schools, or you can visit our website at everactive.org for more great content and resources. Until next time, folks, The Pod Class is dismissed.